Hi, Lee Sales here. As if it was going to be Annabelle Crab. <laughs> now, there's really no reason for me to be singing this song this week. It's not like it's the 50th anniversary of Chicago or anything. It's all to annoy Annabelle Crab. Come on, B, we're gonna paint the town. And all that jazz, I'm gonna rouge my knees and roll my stockings down. And all that jazz, stop the car, I know it would be spot where the gin is cool, but the piano's hot. It's just a noisy hall where there's a nightly brawl and all that jazz. <laughs> Are you annoyed yet, Crab? I don't know why I keep showing up. Like, <laughs> they just, oh, whenever it's, you know, so anyway, the only room I could get was the room with the grand piano in it. I think, like, oh, well, you were the, the one who raised. Feeling. You were the one who raised all that jazz at the Sydney Writers Festival, well, and, and then it's I... your three-year-old kid performing it. <laughs> well, my three-year-old child, because often I just walk around the house singing show tunes. Because there's a lot of pauses in that, and when you're not near the piano, you don't have the whole filling them. No, um, that is awkward. He... I find whenever I'm. <laughs> walking around my house yelling show tunes at my unsuspecting children. Well, the three-year-old follows me around just going, and what's next? Every time I pause, and, and what's next? So it'll be like, oh, what's next? That. What's next? Jazz. Ah, <laughs> uh, dealing with people with short attention spans. Hey, speaking of all that jazz, I interviewed Caroline Lovely segue. Lovely, <laughs> lovely segue. Speaking of all that jazz, allow me to enlighten you with the entire score. Um, I thought I, you were going to change the words and make it annoying crap. Uh, oh! Missed oh, opportunity. Yeah, wake and fright. See, this is why I need you as part of the double act, because <laughs> yeah. that passed me by. Years ago, I sang... I'm sorry, I'm busy that lifetime. <laughs> <laughs> Years ago, I sang at my friend Lisa Miller's 40th birthday, Bohemian Rhapsody with the lyrics changed, and I was at home. A performance she endured with grit and, grit and teeth and a very polite smile. <laughs> she, I was at home trying to work out the alternate lyrics, and I got to the bit in that the middle, you know, Bismillah. Anyway, I could not figure out so an I alternate lyric. I actually nearly inhaled my butter menthol. <laughs> Anyway, Phil came running out and went, oh, for God's sake, Miss Miller fits perfectly. Like, what's the mucking around for? And so it was like, oh, right, of course. <laughs> so that's why I need someone around like you to help me fill in the blanks. Anyway, um, I interviewed Caroline O'Connor the other week, who's a very big Australian musical theatre star who was starred in Chicago as Velma Kelly, who sings all that jazz, and is hugely in demand around the world on Broadway and in the West End, and she's back in Australia at the moment to star in Anything Goes, which has just opened in Melbourne. And I so enjoyed interviewing her, and she said this thing that I just thought was so great. She was talking about how she still likes to keep in the front of her mind before she goes on stage every performance the audience and so she said she always peeks out the curtains and she looks at all the little hubbub in the crowd and she said that she watches the chatter and she watches them looking at their programs and she thinks about them getting ready to come to the theatre and putting on their nice clothes and getting in the car and having some champagne at the bar and then sitting down and mm. the excitement that people must feel to be having a special outing and seeing a show live and then she said that when she makes that little connection that she it 
puts in her mind what her job is, which is to go out yeah. there and entertain and deliver them the special night out that they've been hoping for. God, I thought that was good, that she just sort of keeps that, you know. It's not all about me. Yeah, and that she <laughs> understands that actually her line of work is, I mean, it is art to a degree and she's ridiculously talented, but it's a commercial transaction that those people are parting with money to be entertained, which reminds me of something that happened. Sorry, I'm just doing all the talking No, no, today. no. I mean, I'll stop you when you stop being interesting. <laughs> I promise. Possibly right. in quite an unfeeling and brutal way. In about two hours. Um, it reminds me of something at the Writers' Festival. I did a um, session with three people. It's called, it was called the, the Books That Exploded, and it was with three oh, people yeah, right, okay. who'd mm. written books that went gangbusters. Leanne Moriarty, who we talked We've about We've talked about before, who's just like the number one bestseller everywhere. Amazing. Ooh. It turns out her name's pronounced Leanne Moriarty. Oh, I discovered after I said hi to her. Um, okay. Her on, how did she handle that? Like, she, uh, was it sort of like, she, no, someone Leanne, else, actually. Someone oh, else right, said it. Okay. Yeah, and then I, I went, oh, how embarrassing. I'm calling it the wrong thing. Yeah. Um, her, it's across to bear, isn't it, when you've got a slightly different pronunciation. Exactly. Yeah. Although I thought later it sort of does actually look like it would be pronounced Leanne from mm. how it's written. But anyway, her latest book sold three million copies in the US, <laughs> she said in this session. Amazing. Anyway, so her, Graham Simpson, who wrote a book called The Rosie Project yeah. and the new one's called The Rosie Effect, also meant gangbusters, and a guy called Terry Hayes, who's a very successful screenwriter, written yep. Dead Calm, Bangkok Hilton. <clears throat> He wrote a book called I Am Pilgrim that I loved. It was a thriller, really pacey thriller, and has also gone gangbusters, sold the movie rights, sold to many markets. They were all talking a little bit about um, popular fiction versus literary right. fiction. What is the distinction? Like, how do you know if your book, beyond how many copies it sells, how do you know if your book is literary fiction or popular fiction? Well, I think it's a bit of a, um, I think it's a, bit of a cloudy kind of... Um, divide and the closer that people are to the um the middle bit the more anxious they get about how they're classified i reckon <laughs> you know because i mean if you aspire to be a literary fiction writer i guess you aspire to being a tiny bit cerebral and difficult but brilliant and possibly underappreciated like it's part of your um and you know you're going to be off starving in a garret somewhere right which is part of the romance <laughs> and then i guess that if you have a book that is massively massively popular then you're haunted by new fears amid your you know romping um zeros of your bank account um <laughs> that oh my god have i sold out um look actually i think the division is um i mean you do have literary fiction books that do sell really well mm. but in the sort of selling three million you know in america kind of division you're often looking at what is called popular fiction, which is, I think, like, they, the general kind of analysis is that popular fiction is there for the moment. You read it and you think, that was excellent, maybe on a holiday or something like mm. that. And you don't reread it. You don't go back to it. You don't kind of think about the issues that that raised or, you know, you don't go and write an essay about it. You just enjoy it, you know. But is, but, the, is the mark of a good book not that you would rip through it and really enjoy it? Like, why should that be sort of, why should it, why should something being called popular fiction then be seen as a bit derogatory? I don't really get it. Well, because quality is associated with pain a lot of the time in literature, don't you think? Like that the books that you really kind of grapple with that are kind of like, you know, 
a mm. big fish for Hemingway or something, um, you know, that, that, that there's something you've got to work at in order to get the value out of it. You mm. know? Um, I don't know. I mean, um, it's never bothered me all that much, I must say. Um, I just, when these people were talking about it, I just, I sort of, well, I was going to say I felt for them, but I didn't really, because they made like, squillions. I, I, I felt envious oh of God, them. I'm just going <laughs> to sob into this $100 note. <laughs> yeah, I'm and sorry. they throw it away because I have so many. No, um, but it did but it Were did they seem... kind of touchy about it, do you think? Uh, I'm not sure if touchy, maybe a little. I'm not sure if touchy is quite the right word, but perhaps a little. But I've noticed it from the other end, though, sometimes too, that literary fiction people are so snobby about popular fiction. And sure, but they've got to have something, it. right? Like, you know, <laughs> yeah, it's either right. you get the convertible or the right to be a bit snippy, you know. <laughs> I mean, pick a lane, lady. <laughs> but, I mean, I, literary festivals, oh, God, they're so funny. So we've just been to that one night, Sydney Writers Festival. I had um, dinner with Amy Bloom, you know. I just read her book, um, Lucky Us, mm -hmm. and was effusing over it to anyone uh, I ran into, including you, on a number of, you know, over-the-top um, junctures, um, I asked her out for dinner. Yeah. Um, and she – so we had this dinner, and we were talking about – which was – I shouldn't just brush over that. I mean, it was spectacularly exciting for me to have dinner with this writer. But um, she was saying, oh, I don't really go to writers' festivals that often. And she's a former psychotherapist, right? So oh, hi. Oh, is hello. yoga about to start in this room? No, no just we just snuck in to use the piano. We've, we've, we've done our piano bit. Bugger off. Time for yoga. Oh, my God. The ABC yoga crew has arrived. That's just like... Or bugger off. Okay. <laughs> or bugger off. All right. We're, uh, we're in the middle of recording our podcast. Clark, our friend uh, who runs makeup, just walked in to do his yoga class. So we'll be retiring to the breastfeeding Before room. he removes any more clothes. Just, oh. I did get the song out, thank God. <laughs> Okay, excuse us, we'll be back in one second. Well, here we are again. <laughs> just when that wasn't you, awkward. <laughs> just when I thought, look, we're going to have one week where we actually do a quite professional one in a, in a nice soundproof room. No, interrupted by a yoga class. Yeah, oh, chased dear. out by people in leotards. <laughs> anyway, so you were saying oh, yes. how wonderful well, it was to have I dinner with. You, I was having dinner with Amy. You were. Classy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Anyway, so... so um, but she was saying that she doesn't go to literary festivals all that often. Right. Um, I said, oh, yeah, how come? She said, I just can't, um, I can't quite bear the, the need, the open need that's on display. Oh. And I said, what do you mean, you know, from, from readers who are kind of wanting to meet people or talk to um, writers? And she said, no, no, among the writers, there's just this sort of... Um, she said among some people there's this sort of incredible sensitivity about, you know, how they're viewed, how they're being treated or, you know, how many people turn up for their signings and stuff like that. And I thought about it and thought, well, God, it's such an artificial gathering, isn't it? Like all these people who normally work in a really solitary way and who are not recognisable in that way that, mm. you know, famous TV stars mm. or, um, or, you know, movie stars or even politicians or whatever are mm. recognisable. You could literally be standing next to, you know, the sort of best-selling author in, you know, France something and, and, and not have any idea what they look like. So mm. there's this sort of really weird cross-section of experience in, in that you've got all these people who are intensely famous but often not really recognisable and, and who are kind of looking at each other and going, you know, mm, 
<laughs> I mean, and I guess how that kind of literary fiction versus you know, popular fiction kind of plays into that as well. Well, and also I guess that if you've chosen to spend your life basically locked in a room in your own imagination writing, possibly the idea of having to go to a festival and hang around in rooms of people that you don't know and then sit up on stage in front of complete strangers and do public speaking for an hour right. is possibly your worst nightmare. Sure, yeah. <laughs> and there are, I mean, last Sydney Writers' Festival I did this um, uh, kind of session at the town hall that had um, a bunch of different writers um, and... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> there was Sandy Toxvig, who um, is often on um, uh, QI. She's a comedian and broadcaster. She wrote this book called P's and Q's about etiquette. You'd really like it, I reckon. Mm, okay. Book. And, um, and also Irvin Welsh talking about his new <laughs> novel. He's this sort of, you know, kind of filth-crammed kind of <laughs> drug adventure in, um, in California. Um, and this guy called Gary Steingart, who's a kind of oh, highly nice. anxious kind of Russian emigre Jew who moved with his parents from Russia to New York when he was a, a little kid. And it's his book is called Little Failure, and it's this kind of massively self-lacerating account of his own idiocy and failure and venality <laughs> and how awful his parents were and still are. And he was so, you know, anxious about being on um, stage, although I, I suspect that this is part of his shtick, that he was just actually eating beta blockers. Like he was just, oh. he had this bottle of pills with him, which he was just constantly taking because he just couldn't bear the nerves of what he... <laughs> but the funny thing about him... Uh, sorry, we're now absolutely wildly off track and I apologise for that, but um, it's a great book too, very funny, um, Little Failure. Um, but he also <laughs> revealed that his parents haven't read the book. Like, it's a it's an absolute New York Times bestseller. And his parents only read Russian. So they haven't read this kind of incredibly... Like, his parents come out of it really badly... <laughs> Thank the God. only thing protecting him from what you must assume would be full family breakdown is um, a language barrier, which Lucky will him. only survive as long as it's not been translated. <laughs> couldn't be far away, could it, really? Anyway. <laughs> Funny. Um, is there anything yeah. else that the Writers' Festival, you know how those sorts of events sometimes yeah. throw up things into your path? That... Yeah, well, I have read a couple of things that I kind of... Um, there's a Chinese writer called Jinran who's... Um, Wow, she's so she's a columnist, and she um, moved to London and started writing a column in the Guardian, which I said I hadn't read. But it's it's actually about Chinese life, but written for Western readers. Oh, that sounds great! It's so interesting, and it makes you think of this sort of like this huge and diverse culture that has a really. I mean, the way we look at China is so much about business and power and, you know, um, the economy and, you know, appetite for iron ore. I mean, uh, and then um, we look at it, you know, as a, as a political entity, I suppose, as a, as a different political system, as, um, you know, a, a potentially hostile power and, you know. But I think what we often miss out on is just Chinese stories about um, people's lives. And she writes so devastatingly about you know like about the women that she sees who um who have boy children and they're killed you know like extraordinary stories and she's got this 
amazing when she lived in China, she ran a radio show and people would call in with their stories and she'd go and track them down. Just the most mm, That sounds great. Kind of... Never even heard of her, but yeah, it sounds phenomenal. she's very wise. And the way that she writes is she's got that kind of, it's almost like a parable, the way that she writes. So it's quite an old-fashioned way of writing, but she's talking about really contemporary issues and a lot about women as well. I mean, it's just, I just absolutely flew through this book. It's not a particularly new one. Is it a collection of the columns from yeah, The Guardian? Oh, yeah, right. Okay. Yeah. Oh, that sounds um, great. Yeah, it was really great. Um, and the other one that I picked up because everyone was going crazy about um, H is for Hawk by um, Helen McDonald. So I went out and picked that up pretty snappily, as I know did Yes, you. so did I, because we, speaking of people <laughs> that you got to dine with, it was super exciting, we got to have lunch with Helen Garner, who, as any listeners of the podcast will know, we are massive, massive fans of, um, and she said how much she loved H's yep. Hawk, and so we both, of course, promptly went out and got it. Now... Again, as listeners of the podcast will know, I have some bird issues. I'm not that interested in birds. Should we explain what H's for Hawk is about? Like, yes. Okay, one thing, one really good way to get across what this book is about is to listen to Richard Feidler's interview with Helen Absolutely. McDonald. So Helen McDonald is an academic and writer and bird enthusiast from way back. Yay. Um, was um, obsessed with falconry when she was a kid. Anyway, and... Um, not very many years ago, her father died. Her father was a photographer. She was really close to him. And he died very suddenly, sort of in the street. He was working, had a heart attack. And she really was just knocked sideways by it to the point where she was just sort of absolutely floored by grief and she couldn't work out how to get back to living her life again. And some would think unusually, her solution, not a solution, but sort of the direction that she took was that she drove to Scotland, bought a goshawk chick and raised it. Well, not a chick, a bird, you know. And so the whole book is about her communion with this bird and, like, just going off to woods and teaching it to fly and kind of... <laughs> and it's his sales. It's just like... <laughs> You are the sociopathic face of bird hatred. I think you're an ornithopath. You know, you, you just, you have no capacity to be interested in anything that involves a bird. Like, I, what about Sylvester and Tweety? What, were you okay with it's that? It's broader or? than that. It's more nature, really? generally. <laughs> no, right. it's, I... That's actually, you have never sent me a cat video or anything, you know. <laughs> oh, I like cat videos. No, like, it's more to do one with... One of our best friends is, like, obsessed with otters, oh, right? okay. Otter mental. Right. Um, Are you just pretending to be interested in those? No, no, I like those. What I, what I find hard going as a book... Look, Ages for Hawk, I'm about four chapters in, and I, I do like it, and she is a really good writer. Like, it's really well written. But what she's really good at writing are things like descriptions of what a falcon's wings look so like. So good though. I mean I just read and reread that page. It was the most amazing. It was an incredible it was an incredible description. But I find books <laughs> that have lengthy descriptions of landscapes or scenery or birds. I just you're not just a potboiler lady, aren't I you? Am more, I am more. I am. There to be I am interested in murder, <laughs> yes, and adventure, completely. and oh my god, it's my long lost brother, <laughs> and, and I've like... been shagging, and then I murdered. <laughs> that sounds awesome. What book are you talking about? <laughs> I, I like people, people's relationships, what people are thinking, what people are thinking about other people. I'm not that interested in what people are thinking about birds and what they're surmising <laughs> the birds are thinking about them. <laughs> so I remember when I was a kid. <laughs> 
writes about grief in the most... I'm not up to that stuff yet. Okay. Um, when I was a kid... You're stuck on the bird wing. Sorry, did, you ever, did you ever read a book called My Side of the Mountain when you were a kid? I can't remember who it was by. It was a kid, it I was, remember that book vaguely. I don't have any... I don't really remember what it was about. It was a kid who I think I think it's set in like New York or somewhere like that. He runs away from the city and he just goes and lives in the bush and lives in the in a hole in a tree. Like, got no interest in that really. I had to read it. I, I never I never thought oh, I'd love kid. to be that guy. Or like you said at the writers' festival, you talked about Gerald Durrell and how much you loved his oh. work. Now my mother sent me an email and said, "Oh, I had all of those books. I loved them. They were all on our shelf when you were a child. You never really seemed to get into them." No, Mum, I didn't. Not a bag. You should have had Annabelle Crabb as a child. <laughs> well, you were too busy reading Nancy Drew because I was you too... could picture yourself as Nancy Drew. I was Maybe too... you just can't picture yourself as a hawk. I was too busy getting into Mum's Sydney Sheldons. And, um... Oh, yeah. Did you, read, you. did you read Lace? As a <laughs> Shirley Conran? Yes! Right? Yeah. <laughs> no, I didn't. Are you joking? <laughs> I don't think I did. Oh, that's like a rite of passage. I remember seeing it at my friend's house and just going, whoa, because it's got some sort of like... Busty cleavage on the front, right? Is that, is that, is that well, it's the one. I, we used to make bits of the thorn birds, like the dirty bits. It's the one that is. There's three women who go to some Swiss boarding school together, and one of them has had a secret daughter, and they've sworn this pact that they'll never tell. And so then the book sort of finds out. It turns out they've all shagged the same bloke, Prince Abdullah, and then one of them has had the offspring, who was played by Phoebe Cates in the. Right, miniseries okay. of the aforementioned lace. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, it was Mandy, my friend and I, who was Annabelle Crabb before Annabelle Crabb, um, used to sit side by side in my parents' rumpus rooms just reading it and sort of, ready? Yep, flip. And then right. we'd be just reading at the same time. Oh, fantastic. <laughs> anyway, how did we get into no that? No birds in that. No um, birds in that, that's right. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so Ages for Hawk, I do, um, it is really well written and I can see what the appeal is. And the podcast with Richard Feidler, oh, she's got the most beautiful voice. She's very funny as well mm, and she sort is, of yeah. self-effacing. But yeah. look, I, you know, the bird descriptions I love because... Um, because you're a freak. Well, and also, God, it really reminded me, there's this woman, a Sydney woman, a photographer called Layla Jeffries, who does the most incredible pictures of birds. Yeah, yeah I love one of them for Christmas, thanks. I'm just... <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I'm going to give you for Christmas. I, I just decided. I'm just going to tell you because you've got a short attention span. You'll forget by December. <laughs> I'm going to get you a stuffed and mounted bird. <laughs> I'm not going to give you one every year. I want so like a... thousands of them. They collect dust. And, Can I have yeah, like a, taxi a taxidermy fail sort of yeah. one? Like... <laughs> yeah, sure. No problem at all. Um, anyway, she takes these most beautiful pictures of birds that are huge. Like they're about a metre by two <laughs> metres. Sounding better and better. <laughs> Anyway, yep. the way this woman writes is kind of reminds me of the way Layla Jeffries takes photographs mm. of birds, right? It's just the intensity of the detail. And the thing that I like about that as a writing exercise, quite seriously, beyond you know my already established interest in birds, is that she, as a writer, she's incredibly detailed, but she, she applies really close scrutiny to mm. all sorts of things, not just birds' wings, but also the way that she feels the moment that she hears that her dad has been killed and then her description of like the period of grief afterwards is really I have read that bit it's yeah it's really interesting because well, she has think, the she has dinner plans with her friend and she right, insists and on still going and, it's and then she has a meltdown weird, at dinner yeah. and there's this weird moment where the waiter having heard what happened brings her a slice of cake and she thinks well what like you know that's when she loses it um but it's this um, 
I don't know, like the capacity to be completely subsumed by grief, but then to be able to remember or be aware of enough about it to be able to then later write a description of it is really interesting, I think, mm. because... It's an incredible skill. People who are great profile writers, I think, are very good at it, which is, it's almost like a level of detachment that's necessary in order yeah. to be able to either observe yourself or yeah. somebody else and then to be able to write quite clinically yeah, about it. Absolutely. Some of those people that we've talked about who write about death and their own death yeah. do it incredibly yeah. well also. Um, the tendency yeah. with grief is just to say things like, a wave of grief swamped me or, you know, like mm. it, there's a sort of a namelessness about it. Well, the way you describe it is this overwhelming featureless thing that you mm. can't sort of get out of. Well, she talks about feeling like metal, doesn't yeah. she? And how she would yeah. sit on chairs and feel like she was going to melt or yeah. something into the chair. Yeah, it, it, it definitely is well written. I'm, I'm certainly not disliking it, but it's not my natural, yeah. not the type of thing I'd be There's naturally... not enough, you know, shagging and shooting. <laughs> exactly. Unless the bird's <laughs> going to cop it like... later. Well, when she and the bird get it on... I'm... Um, um, now, when you were talking about want to say no, no, moving right yeah. along. When you were talking about China before, it reminded me of a piece that you sent me about Russia. Russia, oh my god! It was isn't that electrifying. Oh, tell everyone about it. So, it was amazing. Um, it's uh, from the New York Times Magazine. It's written by a guy called Adrian Chen, who's a journal who I think he still does a lot of work for Wired. Maybe still does. I don't know. I don't read Wired all the time. Although whenever I do, I often think you strike me as a Wired reader. Yeah, I should yeah. read Wired more. <laughs> um, anyway, so he's written about this sort of um, blogger, fact, um, a, a troll factory um, in Russia, and which is this sort of workplace that's sort of vaguely Kremlin-sponsored or sponsored by Kremlin um, sympathisers, where um, they get all these sort of mainly young people come work and they have these sort of online personas and they spend all of their time commenting on contributing to all sorts of social media sites and discussion sites um, where they are um, uh, defending the Kremlin and kind of running down the states uh, and anti-Obama posts and whatever. So far so kind of not that interesting. But he is incredibly forensic, if I may use that term around you, um, <laughs> about chasing down um, some of the patterns in this sort of vast army of, of um, trolls. And it starts this piece with an account of a fake chemical emergency that happens in, I can't even remember which state it was, it's like, you know. New Jersey yeah, or somewhere? Yeah, somewhere. <coughs> um, and all of a sudden there's all these sort of reports on social media about an explosion that's taken place in this chemical plant. And there are people seemingly responding in real time and saying, yes, I saw a blue great blue explosion and the smelling funny stuff and there's sirens going off and people with loud hailers, you know, driving down the street saying... Um, Someone tweets what is supposedly a photo of the CNN homepage where it's right, the lead story. Right, and, but it's yeah. all made up. And then, um, so you get this sort of rolling, and it's on the anniversary of September the 11th, um, you get this sort of panic that starts to set in where people think, oh my God, have you heard about this big explosion? No explosions happened. Um, it's completely and in quite a sophisticated way made up um, 
designed to kind of just destabilise, create a bit of fear and uncertainty. And the writer, Adrian Chen, goes and investigates this um, troll factory, goes and finds a woman who used to work there and starts investigating all of these sort of little nooks and crannies and this sort of network. It's so fascinating. Oh, and it was just... It's... I, like, it's quite hard to capture just in discussion how completely intriguing and bizarre it was and how it seemed like, it did seem like a novel. It seemed yeah. totally novelly. It's a really good reminder that, you know, kind of controlled state things work mm. differently. And I think when we kind of read and think about Russia, it's not something that comes necessarily easily to people who are born and raised in Australia. And also how much havoc can be wrought by... Internet with people's ideas about what is reality. That's right. Yeah. And how much we, we think, oh, well, I saw something on CNN or whatever, so it must have actually happened, and how easily that is to gain. And you know, as a journalist, you know, I always remember that day, remember that day when Michael Jackson died, mm -hmm. and there was this sort of ancillary flurry about... Um, these reports that Jeffrey Goldblum had died. Yeah. Well. Remember that? <laughs> yeah. And like a couple of um, uh, networks that carried like tributes to Jeff Goldblum and stuff. It was just like, and I remember seeing that on Twitter as well. So I was watching social media really closely and watching what was happening with the Jackson um, story. And I remember looking at a few of the websites and you know, you get a sniff of these things, like it's a really minor website or there's only a couple and they seem to be using the same phrases so it's just being cut and pasted. You know, you can get an idea of how small these things are and how likely they are to be a fake. But if somebody just puts a bit of work into faking up a CNN mm. page or, you know, I think another one that they did in this fake chemical leak incident was actually film somebody like purporting to be a local news crew, you know. Mm. And so that footage was up and everyone was like, wow, God, it really is happening. Um, Conversely now, I wonder if when the Queen actually dies, will anyone believe it? Because right. there's been too many mistakes where right, people know, have, yeah. over the years, you know, over the decades, where people have accidentally put something to air, a bit of practice broadcast or, or the obit that's... been killed a bunch of times. I know. Yeah. Like, I'm going to need to actually see the Queen's body. Right, OK. Even then, I may not believe it. <laughs> Try and work that into your contract. <laughs> It just anyway, this piece is just so interesting about. Um, oh, it really, really. There's was. a really chilling line in it where, having talked to all of these kind of um, revolutionaries, and I mean, the writer makes this point that the internet in Russia has been this incredible tool for opposition, but now, given the level of government interest in control over and gaming of that platform, he said there is a dawning awareness that the internet is no longer a natural medium for political opposition. And like it's scary because you just start to understand what a malign authority can do with this sort of um, platform. Yeah. I got the same feeling as when I read um, Marsha Gessen's book, um, The Man Without a Face, um, which is just a kind of stunning portrait of Vladimir Putin mm. and it's chilling to remember that there are parts of the world that are governed by powers and structures that seem so alien to us but are incredibly real for 
hundreds of millions of people. That's right. The, um, we will, of course, put the links to that stuff on our website, which brings me to, if you want to have a look at all the links, go to our website, www.chat10looks3.com. And if you like us, leave a review on iTunes. Speaking of which, because <laughs> Phil's always hassling us to tell people to give us a review on iTunes, I thought this week, I better go and have a look, actually. <laughs> What is on there You're and what people are person. actually saying. And I, look, some of them were so entertaining that I thought I'd actually bring them to read out to you. So um, I thought this person nailed it, actually. Oh, Five God. stars from Mawson's yeah, Heart. nailed it. Oh, that's good enough for me. <laughs> A couple of real dags prattle on about nonsense. <laughs> that just needs to be on the homepage, right? That's like the perfect homepage. summary. T-shirts. Five stars by He He He. Excellent podcast. Highly original and most likely unscripted. You think? What gives you that idea? I find that really, I'm quite puzzled by that actually. getting escorted out of, you know, wherever we are actually recording it. Spicks and Specs says, the chat rating's right, but I'd rate them higher on looks. Oh, thanks very much. Um, Oh, here's one for you. Five stars from Paris Carver. I use podcasts to fall to sleep to. This is not one of them. Lee Sales needs to sing more. Oh, really? <laughs> and what's the name of that person? <laughs> Lee Sells. So I mean, so Paris Carver. <laughs> Paris Carver, sorry. Um, this was a pretty good one. Um, Behind 30, fabulous podcast, Lee Sells and Annabelle Crabb discussing the Mitford family was a moment of pure happiness for me. Two stars. A moment <laughs> of pure happiness? <laughs> and it's worth two stars? Wow, like, tough crowd. This podcast gave me multiple <laughs> orgasm. Three stars. <laughs> it was like the birth of my child. Three and a half stars. <laughs> Um, now, what were some of the other ones that were quite good? Um, oh, yeah, all in all, an amusing podcast. However, probably you will leave hungry, as they always seem to be eating during all the recordings. Except for this week, Crab didn't bring any food. That butter menthol was delicious, though. <laughs> Don't we're let... in the hands of big throat lozenge now. <laughs> Here's one from um, Gemma's 2. Don't let the bad name put you off for a month or two like it did me. What's wrong with the name? <laughs> Okay, but this one was my absolute favourite. Five stars from ABC for Cooks. You crack me up every single episode. I laughed so much when you were reading out Brendan's instructions on how to promote yourselves. Oh, Brendan. (laughs) Okay, so, yeah, Brendan. Isn't that lovely? Um, Yep, so I reckon we've done... uh, Go to the website, leave us a review. Brendan Brendan. will be happy. (laughs) We do it all for Brendan, really. I know, it's all for Brendan. He asks for so little. (laughs) Brendan Jackson. (laughs) All right, everyone. See you next time. Thank you.